Hello and welcome to episode 22 of the Offsite Podcast, where we chat all things construction and technology. My name's Carlos Cabole. And I'm Jason Lanzini. G'day, Carlos. I'm on time and prepared as usual. <laughs> yeah. Are you? <laughs> no, for, 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 for everyone else, I'm usually five minutes late and have done uh, close to no prep and Carlos is raring and ready to go. So I'm on brand. It's fine. If we break routine, it'll feel weird each week. So uh, we might as well continue. Yeah, that's it. We'll jinx it. Absolutely. Right. So over the next few episodes, we've got a bit of a theme around AI and scheduling. And we've got a few guests lined up over sort of three episodes. And we thought we'd kick off this sort of trio of episodes to talk to someone that's on the leading edge of AI and scheduling. He's a well-known face within the industry and a huge welcome to Dev. CEO of Mplan. How are you doing, mate? I'm good, guys. Thanks for having me here. No problem at all. I really like the uh, neon sign. I'm going to get an AFIX one made ASAP for these podcasts. <laughs> so we all offered to start with a bit of background around our guests, but I think I might just point the question towards you. How did you start at aerospace engineering, transition through Shell and end up founding Mplan? You know, as, as any good graduate does, just <clears throat> go and take the job with the highest uh, salary you can possibly get, even if you can't do it. So that's what I did. I joined Shell, worked there for nine years. I was a project engineer and a project manager for most of that, right? Like delivering large capital projects on the pointy end in some really awful parts of the world. So I saw that problem there. I, I did take a really weird sidestep in my career after being a project manager for nine years, which was I was a special advisor to Theresa May the prime minister of the UK for 18 months, long months. And in that time, I wrote the UK's national strategy on AI. So that was kind of like my weird bridge between being out in the field, managing large projects, and then starting and then running an AI company. Can, can I press pause then, Dev? How did you get, <laughs> how did you get, how did you become a special advisor to Theresa May writing an AI strategy? It kind of fell into it. The last thing I did at Shell was I worked on the acquisition of PG Group. Basically, I got to work with the CEO, the CFO, the chairman of the group. And then one of them was like, hey, what are you doing next in your career? And I was like, I don't know. And I'm like, have you ever thought about working for the UK government? And I was like, yes. Nice. Did my dream all along. And then <laughs> introductions were made and... And then I just showed up on Theresa May's third day in the office. Writing the, um, writing the, the government sort of, writing that sort of document and then founding an AI company feels like the venture equivalent of insider trading to me. <laughs> I wish it was like, I wish it was that lucrative. Um, sadly not. Um, I, I think all it really gave me was like perspective. I, I was just like, I can cut through bullshit pretty damn quickly now. You know, remarkably, six years on, there's still a lot of bullshit in the world, in the AI space, that is. It just helped me, like, navigate the space really quickly, right? Like, when founding a company, clock speed is, like, so important. You have to move really fast at figuring out what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, and then just do it. So, I don't know. Call that, uh, call that information arbitrage. But, yeah, it certainly wasn't financial arbitrage. <laughs> yeah. I wish the current, current government would get it, cutting through the bullshit. Um, but uh, right, so to get, I guess, a little stuck in, our audience is typically project managers and engineers. 
what does AI schedule analysis do for them? Perhaps what it says in the tin can, it will analyze a schedule, any schedule, to be able to say, to answer three key, three key questions about any project and any schedule. How long is this project most likely to take? What is the most probable outcome? Question one. Two, what might go wrong with this project? Or what opportunities do I have to improve this project? Question two and question three, what do I do about all of this? Prioritization, help me come up with strategies, scenarios, plan, plan through the maze of project delivery becomes challenge three. And all of that is driven through a system that can run the analysis part automatically, right? Previously, people used to do this analysis known as a quantitative schedule risk analysis. USRA for short, run these long workshops, lots and lots of guesswork goes into that, right? I've been part of these workshops before and I'm like, I don't like that answer. Maybe we should change our guess. It, it, it's not only just, not only is it incredibly time consuming and cumbersome, it's flat out not correct. Like you just don't get valid answers through that process. Um, there's tons of research that can show that today. And, and so it, like, Dev, if I can jump in, I guess uh, one of the things that I say internally in our team, like a ton is construction project managers and teams are, are like drowning in this like sea of software that's being like trying to be like foisted on them uh, with names that they can't remember and like logos that are all slightly different versions of a blue word that they won't remember either. And positioning is, no, yes, that's neon purple. So those are, <laughs> Dev just pointed to his logo at the back. We also have a blue logo, so we're, we're also guilty. But uh, like, so positioning is super important. Nowadays, post uh, AI hype, I guess there's a bunch of software out there claiming they've now suddenly become not just construction software, but construction software plus AI. And you guys are like the OG of construction AI. So how, I guess, how do you place or position and plan and what you do as well as possible so that it has cut through for like a project manager or someone that's going to make a decision to use your software. How do you position it? Is it replacing something? Is it adding to them? Um, does it open up new capabilities? What's the thing that sort of gets the cut through? The most frequent cut through we get, we cut out bullshit. The more formal word of that is called assurance. So algorithmically led assurance is that primary one. It's like, listen, man, if it's a project manager we're speaking to or commercial manager or, or above, we're basically like, listen, we can give you more confidence about the outcome of your project than you will possibly ever get from any other source, period. That seems to work quite well. We do have different, when we're talking to planners, when we're talking to con project controls, you know, it's, it, when, when the message is very different. It's much more of a message of empowerment. Like, yeah, you guys spend hundreds of hours coming, trying to come up with these things. And you just get shot down by project managers that don't like the answer that you're providing them. We can give you a tool that will back it up. Your, your answers now are backed up with 750,000 projects of data in the back, right? It's no longer Dev's opinion or Jason's opinion or the project controls team's opinion versus, you know, everyone else. It's like, well, this is backed with data. That's, that's a story of empowerment. Um, and that seems to cut, work very well with the controls team and the planning team that we work with as well. So not, so not something like the classic advice is, uh, it's always better to sell to pain. Um, but you find that like this positive story uh, and empowerment and confidence was the word you use for project managers. That's like the, yeah, I mean, th there is a serious pain in doing a QSRA and then it gets ignored. 
Um, I don't think anyone yeah. likes doing that um, or enjoys the feeling when that happens. So, so we all sing to that pain there. It's the pain of insufficient empowerment, right? Um, and say that we could, we could give you the tool to get you out of the basement and onto the top floor. One of the, um, one of the things that comes up a lot when it's amazing how many teams that I talk to or we talk to and everyone's interested in what can AI do for them. And people are really talking about like thinking about it at the moment on, I guess, from our background and our exposures on the contractor side, one of the things that people are trying to wrap their head around is like concrete examples of, you know, what, how would I use this here? How would I use this there? So like, if we were to, I don't know if, if I can just throw a sort of scenario, I'm on, I'm on a, you know, an infrastructure project, project manager for the, for the contractor or the client you choose, whichever is the better, the better fit. Like what's like one or two concrete things that I would, would use or do like the, 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 the analysis would do or give me if we were to really boil it down for like a, I guess, someone on the ground. Dev. So let's take the example. You're in project controls on the contractor side, big infrastructure project, call it early days of execution. You know, you're out in the field, you've got people out there doing stuff. It's you're, you're far enough into the project that things are not going to the plan that you originally came up with, right? But, you know, it's like already a year old now. At that point, so what Mplan will be doing is we'll be analyzing every, the, the month's progress updates as they come through, right? You're making progress, you're making changes on the schedule. <clears throat> All that stuff is, I call it business as usual. And we are going to be able to tell you what in the future might go wrong next and the, and the quantitative impact of that. So it's sort of like a, a ranked, a continuous ranked list of the key things you need to think about in advance of time. We call it snowball modeling. So if you've had a, you know, the analogy of the snowball top of the mountain in construction, that is, you know, if your rig operator, if your rig, if your piling rigs are delayed by one day, every project, ma every project manager I know will be like, eh, fine, we'll catch up, right? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. When you don't, the effect that that leads to is that the next thing after the rigs come in will be delayed by five days. The next thing after that will get delayed by 10, 20, 30. And then the snowball keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And by a certain point, you have lost control of your project, right? We can tell you where the snowballs will start, right? So that one day delay, you become pedantic on it. You're just like, we cannot let that even little bit slip there. Mm -hmm. and equally, it's like, well, we know that there's this wall coming up in front of us. So this giant fire is going to light up six months into the future from now. It is way cheaper and less stressful about putting, putting plans in place now to mitigate that risk uh, than it is to like discover that that risk is eventualized. And then now you're all in a frenzy to try and resolve it. Just, yeah. And so like, if I forward looking, put my, yeah. I put my project manager hat on and I think about uh, similar sc or scenarios that might be similar in the past where we're early on in a project, things aren't going well, pressure on the critical path. And we start like inventing strategies to work around yeah. the, the pressure on the critical path and I imagine like when we used to do that, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of onus and responsibility put on the planning team to make those adjustments in a way that is not totally making mistakes and missing things. And does having something like end plan give me more confidence in the adjustments that we're making by like, I don't want to use the word big brother, but I guess double checking in any way, the changes that we're making, that we're not adding risk to the, to the, to our sort of on the fly. Uh, here's the new critical path. Correct. Very much. Um, 
there's the two roles we'll play. Like, so one is you could use a big brother, right? Like in a nice way, not the creepy spy way. Yeah. Friendly um, big brother. Everyone likes that. Friendly big brother. big brother. It's like, yeah. Hey, <laughs> hey buddy, I'll look after you. I've got all this experience in my AI I'm just, head. Jeff, I think we found your new tagline. It's like, and plan, the friendly big brother. Hold <laughs> <laughs> the space. Um, the, yeah, so that one of it, the other is, is just suggestive, right? It's like the project team will use the word earlier. That's like the project team have to kind of invent their way through mitigation, right? It, and, you know, I, as an ex project manager myself as well, there's a lot of like bullshit in that. You just kind of like wing it. You're like, ah, this kind of feels right. Let's just do that now. Yes. You're like, you know, this is a multi-million dollar decision we're taking here, right? And it's like, well, does anyone have any better ideas? And it's like, yeah, oh, yeah, exactly. You, you look like the highest paid person here. So we'll just take that. We'll just take what you say as gospel. And so what Nplan does is that it, it can walk, it will see what you've done. It'll know what other projects in the past have done and say, hey, I can foresee that if you do go down this pathway, this is where you might end up. Here are other pathways you could follow. It, what it won't be able to do is tell you which one is the best one. It's sort of just giving you options, right? And say, here are the options that thousands of other projects have gone down the path of and the results they got to. You pick. Uh, your risk capital might not, your risk contingency pot might not be large enough. You might not have the right relationships. You might have a supply constraint that Nplan doesn't know about. We're just saying like, hey, others have done it this way. Do you want to take a pick from Yeah, so, so to double click on that, because the, the question I was really wanting to get to after we went to the example was like, there's a ton of, uh, in, in AI, well, in all construction software, there's a ton of hyperbole. People have lovely websites. They say what they do. And like, um, there's a, there's a delta between like the hyper reality. So like, yeah, you were quite upfront on what it won't do there. Let's go into that scenario. I'm on a project. I've got pressure on my critical path. I am thinking if I do, instead of going down a path of, uh, building the structure and then I don't know now I'm, I'm, I don't want to expose the project that I'm thinking about in my head if I'm very, if I'm too specific, but if I, if I was to change my path and, uh, and go an alternative way the, into like one of my second or third critical paths and push stuff off the critical path end plan might suggest it. What do you mean by end plan will suggest other routes? And what does that actually look like if I'm on the ground, if I'm the, the planner or the, in the project yeah. controls thing? With, we call it the driving path. Yeah, it does play on the word critical path. Yeah. And what that means, kind of, I mean, other than, I can't screen share right now, but I'll um, you, use my hands as the mechanism to illustrate. Imagine you've got multiple critical paths and each one has a certain like likelihood to impinge at various points throughout the network of execution delivery. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can forecast what the most likely how risk propagates through the network. So we're basically going to be able to say, we know that the way structures that this structure here, the way that it's being planned to be executed has this likelihood of being delayed based on all the data we've seen in the past and the context we've gained from understanding this project. And we do that for every single activity in the entire network. And then what that creates is this thing called the driving path. It's an interactive tool that allows project managers and planners to interact with how will risk propagate through the network. You know, if, if I'm going to move off the critical path and now start focusing on the fourth order underneath it, 
this is what might happen if I do that. You can play out what if scenarios in there. You can also just play out what was I missing inside my own thoughts, right? Like I thought that the substructure would be the super hard thing. And, you know, we need to get our best people on that one. Does sometimes think the same thing or, or, you know, maybe it's the electrical systems that actually are going to come and bite me in the butt later on. And it's not even on my radar today. So it, doing that in a very intuitive way is what the heart of our product does. And so if I'm, if I'm to dumb it down to my, well, let's say uh, for others, but mostly for, for me, can I think of the driving path as like a risk weighted critical path? Yes. Cool. Got it. <laughs> cool. Um, um, does this create a difficult relationship or I guess open a can of worms when it comes to a contractor submitting a schedule? They'll do their own analysis, but then does the client take the schedule and then do use a tool like Nplan and then basically come back with this endless list of reasons why the schedule isn't good enough because Nplan says you can do all of this stuff with them. And then you end up in this back and forth where we now have so much information, it's, it's hard to get to an endpoint. Yeah. Um, and as you say, it might suggest lots of things. And then you're in this battle around like almost trying to reason or argue with a suggestion from a tool trying to get that agreement on the program or sign up on the program becomes quite tough yeah. or do clients not use tools on someone else's schedule because that's, I don't know, not right. No, no, they do. <laughs> um, so th there are two scenarios here, right? And, and, and um, we're, our, our split is roughly 50, 50. So we have half our clients are owner operators and half our clients are, are contractors. So let's, let's start with the contractors. So if a contractor is using Unplan. Um, we've seen it with Kia uh, here in the UK, um, where they're using NPAN a couple of projects. The one I'm allowed to talk about is the Oxford Station Redevelopment by Network Rail. They're using NPAN to give the client assurances that here are not just marking their own homework. Yep. Right? Which, which would typically be the norm, right? You'll just say, here, client, here's my updated schedule and here's my updated forecast. And the client's looking at it by, really? <laughs> is that actually where you're going to be, you know, what are you not telling me inside this? And then, so this cycle of mistrust is kicked off, right? And you end up with the back and forth and it's, it's just, it's just a crappy situation to be in. I used to be on the client side, you know, trying to like contest what the contractor was telling me. And the best I had really was like my intuition that the contractor is trying to, you know, hide information from me and it's my job to go and dig it out by hook or by crook. Really crappy environment to work in, by the way, right? And that sends itself to, so what they're doing is they're saying, hey, Kier, uh, uh, hey, Network Rail, we've done this analysis. We've done it through this method. Here's what the analysis is saying. We're giving you the top bits and we're telling you what mitigations we're putting in place against those things. So, you know, in a way that kind of like reduces the assurance or the review burden that's going on in the project, but doesn't go away. It just reduces it. If a client's using it, yes, we have seen circumstances where it does get a little confrontational. Right? Because the client's saying, I now have access to buckets of information. And then you, the, you know, who has, who has more information starts becoming uh, a source of power. We do not endorse that in any shape or form. So what, what we suggest to our owner operator friend is why don't, you know, it is healthy to challenge your contractor, right? But go to them with, here are the five things we have found that have the highest impact 
that if you were to find a mitigation strategy to them, would give you the best chance of delivering this project to time and budget. Bonus points if there's incent- contractual incentives behind that as well. The best in class systems, that, the best in class frameworks where, you, that, where the owner is using the plan is, is inside alliances, right? Because the, the opportunity for contractual conflict is, is significantly lower than, than, you know, the traditional fixed price lump sum. Cool. I had a, I, had, I did have another question. I was, I, I, um, I was quickly trying to trademark the, uh, the friendly big brother.com domain, but, um, <laughs> so yeah, so the world of AI tools, strategies, techniques, capabilities, and is expanding rapidly. Dev. Some of the strategies that exist now all have emerged as like successful and powerful probably were nascent or may some might not have even existed when you were were getting going how do you internally keep up with you know is it this llm do we use an llm like how do you keep up with the pace of change are you just experimenting with everything that comes on the the block how, how do you internally keep up great question we do the least startup like thing you could imagine which is we have a dedicated five person research team whose job is only to do this. Not only do they just keep a, like call it a horizon scan and see what's out there. They're, I mean, that, I'll call that less than 10% of their job. 90 plus percent of their job is to like just to push the boundaries of what is even technically possible today in, in the research world. You're right. LLMs have, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, suddenly become very much in vogue and we at Anthem do use LLMs. Well, that, that part was like the 10% part, right? Like, how do you find out what we could do with existing technology? Cool. Great. Dedicated resource to do that, by the way. The 90% of the effort though is like, well, what, what could be, what's even further than this? Because if we're thinking about how to use LLMs, we're, we're, all we're doing is catching up, but what's beyond all of this stuff? Uh, what is the world not even seeing right now? So in our world, what we call that is large graph models. That means if you think about a schedule file, it is a beautiful source of information where it contains words, language, right? Large language models, LLM, is basically just text. Schedules contain text. They contain time and they contain relationships. And then if you want to make it really complex, if you have the monthly progress updates, you have like graph evolutionary structures as well, right? The graphs morph as projects go on. We've, we've been spending a ton of time and money um, learning that so that we can generate graphs. That means if you've used Gmail before, or you've seen autocomplete on Gmail, you know, it kind of knows what, what your next sentence is going to be. You just press tab and it starts filling in, right? It's not, not perfect, right? Never is perfect. Imagine that for scheduling. So you're typing in and it's like, oh, I kind of know what you're up to here. And just starts forwarding, you know, ahead of time. Uh, the graph system, but there's all sorts of applications of that. It, things like today, it is nearly impossible to truly detect stupidity inside a schedule. So, you know, what would that mean? It, stupidity would be when someone suggests that you can put the roof before the walls go up, right? Like you could put a finish to start relationship that. on that, and like Acumen Fields would be like, "Yay, good for you." <laughs> um, uh, tip. You know, that's a dumb thing to try and build that. Or if you can figure out how to do it, then you need a raise. But the, the, these types of technologies can then start like saying, hey, you know, you forgot the scope to do this. You've, 
missed out on the better one. The point, I guess the more practical thing that we see is missing scope, right? Where uh, someone will be optimistic that oh, I'll only take a five-day review from this person and then we're good. We can look at the green light to go into the field. It's like, actually, well, no, you know, you're going to have to do that. Then you're going to send the document to this other person and this other person over there has to stamp it and then it's going to come back and then you might go into the field. And that's, those are classic schedule misses um, that are not someone's fault. It's just like really hard to like be able to figure these things out when you're on a project team with limited experiences on your hand. That's call it like the next frontier of research and how we try and capture this. Yeah, cool. Carlos, back to you, man. When, I guess, organizations, um, you're going through a procurement exercise, you produce some sort of business case, you're going to be focused on return on investment. There's the obvious like time saved for planners or project controls leads compared from doing something manually to doing something with end plan. I can imagine ROI is broader than that. It gets a bit more wild because of like end dates, for examples, and <laughs> everything else that comes with it. How do you approach that and how do companies sort of digest that? What is the typical approach? The truth is it is hard to truly quantify the full ROI of using Mplan. And the reason that's hard. It, the reason it's difficult is we are probabilistic future estimators. Right? We're saying everything we do is a probable event in the future. So if it does or does not happen, you know, you can't arbitrate it. You can't like say, let's go build two projects, one with Mplan, one without Mplan. And you know, it, it, you just can't do these things. So without trying to make a science project of ROI calculators, what we do is we typically with, with new organizations we work with, we, we do these things called back tests, which is like, let's play a game that M-Plan, that you actually purchased an M-Plan license t- eight years ago. We'll train our AI models on 80% of the, the projects that you have in your organization and you hide 20% away from us. 20, that 20% goes into the test and we'll pretend like it's 2016 for... 500, 1,000 projects, right? And we forecast. And we just say, like, look, had you bought us back then, we would have told you all these things about the projects. What actually happened to those projects? Did the things that we taught, we would have told you, did they eventualize? Did the projects get, did they go early? Did they run on time? Did they, were they late? Um, how good are these forecasts, right? Like, what would you have done had you had this information back then? That kind of creates like this retrospective ROI, right? Which is like, it, it's a very strong indicator, right? It shows you that the thing is not just it's, randomly it's, guessing. It's, it's also feels like an A-B test with the conventional QSRA. Yeah, 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 it does. Yeah, correct. Very much. It's also a handy way to get hold of thousands of schedules pre-purchase. <laughs> because you get to build that bank, right? By doing this test each time with the 80% Oh, you're such an evil, you're such an <laughs> evil person, Carl. That's a good thing. That improves the model. And, and with every organization we work with, like the model gets better and better, the services get better and better, the forecasting gets better. So yeah, uh, we like to think of it as everyone wins. What, Dev, one last quick question for me, because I'm conscious of time, but um, uh, I guess one of the things that, um, going back to the conversation that, that I've had with people like that relate to your product and, and, and AI generally, what are the sort of typical common objection, objections that you have to face and overcome when... Mm you know, like dealing with whether it be a contractor or, or a client? There are two. Uh, the first and most common by far is I don't believe it can ever work. 
How do the AI systems kind of know? <laughs> yeah, it is a bit fundamental. That's why I say it happens quite often. Like, how do I know it works? Like, how do you know the soil conditions of my site? Like, how do you know the mood of my superintendent? Like, I mean, these things matter, right? Like, big projects get screwed on, on, on the back of these things. How, do you, how does your AI system know all these things? The short answer to that is we don't. We, we don't know these things explicitly. All we know how to do is find patterns amongst projects that might seem or feel similar to yours. It, it, it's how the human brain operates, right? Like if, if you've seen 10 building projects come together and then you get put on to the next building project, you will use those experiences to bring, sorry, if you've seen five building projects and five infrastructure projects and you get put on to building number six, uh, you'll use your building projects experiences to govern what you would think about building number six. Your, your other experiences would be less relevant. And you can make it more intricate than that. Like, so for the, the, the function of the algorithm, the topic of our 400 page patent document at some time, if you ever need bedtime reading, happy to share, um, <laughs> is the ability for an algorithm to automatically generate context of an activity with no human input, right? So it looks at an activity and says, I can generate context of what that means. Like the activity will say paint and our algorithm will automatically figure out what paint means. That's part one. Part two is we backtest. It's like sort of like, just imagine you don't believe anything I just said to you just now, which happens very often to me. Then you're like, well, we'll just test it and show you, right? If I'm, if the thing doesn't understand your project and that you've got funky soil and weird politics in the thing that you're doing, then it won't forecast it correctly, period. The forecast will be wrong. We'll show you that the forecast is not wrong. The forecast is really freaking correct. <laughs> and, and so that becomes unequivocal. Yeah, I can believe, like, I can, I can believe the story for sure if I put my project manager hat on or, or pretend to play one in real life that, like, okay, you're like, uh, you, you, you've got this capacity. Like, if I was a project manager or planner and I've seen 700,000 projects, okay. Yeah, I will. Uh, I'll know a lot more. But the flip side of that is like, if I did, if I was on seven hundred thousand projects and still alive, and I was on a project, I would be able to uh, touch, see, feel, be in the room. I'd have more sources of input, and uh, not just like looking through the lens of the schedule. And is that is that something that because because that probably touches on this idea of like one of the one of the points that that I've definitely had this conversation before of like, you know so much of what's happening isn't in the schedule uh, type, mm -hmm. of, type of conversations. Was that a conversation you end up having quite a lot? Yes, uh, it happens, but not, I wouldn't say a lot. Um, there, perhaps the best part of Venplan's forecasting engine is that if it doesn't think it knows what's going on, for whatever reason, either you're doing something super unique, but it was never seen before, or it just thinks I can't generate enough context to really be able to provide enough confidence here, it will either decline to forecast or will spread its uncertainty, right? Like that paint job could take you five days, could take you 500 days or anything in between that. That's basically like, mm -hmm. I don't know, right? Um, something human beings could do a better job of sometimes. So in a way, like the system won't hallucinate or it won't bluff when it doesn't know something. So if there's information that is beyond the context of the schedule. So it's looking at the schedule and looking at sometimes progress and saying, hold up, the way this thing is tracking doesn't seem like anything I've seen before. It doesn't seem like, or even 
pre-tracking, right? And you have no progress updates to a project. You'll just be looking at it and be like, I don't know, I just don't feel confident about making this forecast in a, in a way that can be relied on. So that, that happens to our clients as well. Yeah, yeah, cool. That's super interesting. Sorry, Carlos, I've, I've gone over. So back to you, right? It's interesting, the, um, the angle of like, you're giving people the experience that they don't, haven't had the time to gather, sort of gain. So like it is an experience industry. People are old when they're senior. So this should in theory accelerate to like other industries where you can have young individuals who they'd be great mm. at reading these models. But yeah, it's, it's end plan, the really old and friendly big brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the one. Right. Uh, I think we're over time. Dev, thank you very much for coming on. Um, really interesting me. conversation. So uh, yeah, That's, uh, that was a really good chat. Um, and thank that, you. Yeah. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening.